0: All of television history is contained within the Box of Delights.
1: It was happening in front of us. Incredible. In our living rooms, it was amazing.
0: Guests pick their favourite television moment. And tell us why they love it. And is this the episode where Daisy's just
1: been for the interview at the Woman's Magazine? Flaps. That's it, Flaps! Yeah. (laughs) Named one of Radio
3: Time's best podcasts of the year. I don't understand people who don't see the joy in drawing the curtains, a mug of hot chocolate and something nice on TV. Like, What could be nicer than that? Than having
0: a snuggle. Exactly. Nostalgia in bite-sized chunks. Box of delights from Great Big Owl.
2: The following podcast is a member of the
1: Great Big Owl family. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like listening to? Um, <laughs> chart
3: music. <laughs>
2: chart music.
3: Pop crazy youngsters, and welcome to the final part of episode 51 of Chart Music. The denouement, if you will. I'm your host. I'll need them. And before we get stuck into the rest of this episode, I just want to clear a few things up. Number one, yes, I do know that I promised you a Q&A with David ages ago, so I better get my arse in gear on that. Number two, I've had loads of inquiries about Here Comes Quism, the chart music pub quiz, and I can confirm right now, yes, there will be a second wave of Here Comes Quism. Anyway, we return you to the episode. In progress. There it is. Take a moment for a ride. A fabulous sound there from Lulu. That's going to be a smash hit. At number nine in the charts, we have
2: Moments and Whatnots. In actual fact, here we have Moments without their Whatnots, which is a little bit painful. They're going to sing
0: about girl. Yeah, hey, I was happy, man. Nothing to it, brother. What it is. Let's talk about what we know how to talk about best.
3: another smash hit for Lulu Tonet explains that 50% of the next act are here in the studio to do the next single which is Girls by the Moments and Whatnots Formed in Washington, D.C. in 1965, The Moment signed up to Sylvia Robinson's Stang label in 1968 and got to number three in the U.S. chart two years later with Love on a Two-Way Street, kicking off a run of Billboard and R&B chart hits in the first half of the 70s, but nary a sniff of the charty arse over here. That all changed when they teamed up with label mates The Whatnots, who were formed in Baltimore in 1969 and were making a comeback after three years of inactivity and while this single has done nothing in the US charts it entered the top 40 over here a fortnight ago and this week it's gone up eight places from number 17 to number nine now unbelievably you won't you won't believe what I'm about to say, but Tony's got the pronunciation wrong. Okay. It's the whatnots, isn't it? It's supposed to be a play on whatnots. But, you know, he's right to correct stupid Americans who can't talk properly because they say astronauts. Oh. So, you know, he's right in that. But he compounds the error by calling them the wartnots, <laughs> as if they were a Victorian blemish cream. <laughs> oh, Tony, even when you write, you're right, you're wrong. You're really
1: mortified at
3: that. I fucking love this song. Mm. I've got a very strong memory of Easter of 1975. Mm. My mum and dad had just managed to get hold of a stereogram, which was a big coffin on legs. Oh, yeah. We have so, of those. all of a sudden, the family radio had the radio band with Hilversum on yeah. it. That became a bit more available, and they didn't go as mental when I took it into my bedroom or mm. sneaked it out. And I remember... Sitting on the junior school field, which is somewhere I shouldn't have been, uh, <laughs> during the Easter holidays, sitting on a grass bank. And this song coming on the radio, because I think David Hamilton played it a lot. And just sitting there in a thunderstorm, but so taken by the music and the stylings of the moments and whatnots, mm. that um I, I didn't give a fuck. I just sat there in the rain listening to it, thinking, oh, this is great. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Radiograms. I mean, yeah, that's fantastic. Radio. The, the radiogram was my gateway into music, as my grandma had one. And you're right, the mm. colossal things. They were the size of sideboards, yeah. and all they contain was a, like a wireless set, you know, one of enormous you know, great things. Yeah. And a record player, which um, well, yeah. I was able to kind of stack. You could play eight singles at a time, you know, if you kind of stack them all up, you know, what what, were they, what would they think of next? Um, Good Lord. But yeah, yeah. I, and that's what actually it was part of what got me into the whole world of music was the radiogram, but they, the, you know, the, the feel and the smell, not just the vinyl, but the rubber of the turntable and everything like that. And it was just a sort of sensory experience, definitely, that uh, mm. the radiogram offered. I'm not quite sure that the, um, that the iPhone does.
3: No, you can't You can't just put it in the living room and look at it yeah. and put plants on it, can you? No, no, I absolutely, don't. yeah. The shit yeah. for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this performance, not only have the moments had to turn mm. up on their own without the maze, they're up against a particularly strident top of the Pops yeah, Orchestra here, yeah. aren't they? Mm.
2: The thing is, the record of this, which is great, it's almost uniquely unsuited to the top of the Pops Orchestra because, yes, it's got yes. a sort of lovely 70s soul sound to it, but mm. it's not like a sort of a lush thing that an orchestra can just sort of copy. right? It's got a weirdly no. sort of primitive, almost futuristic edge to it because it's not really yes. a song song, is it? It's almost like a recitation that's got mm. uh, just sort of weird right turns and that. It sounds like they're waiting for sampling to have been invented. Do you know what I mean? It's got that sort of feel to it where it's just like chunks of rhythm going backwards and forwards. Um Top of the Pops Orchestra just don't quite get that. Um so they Mm. do it in a sort of forced cabaret style. And because it's not much of a composition, it suffers really badly. And also because it's quite a hard song to sing comfortably, because I mean appreciate by 70s rules that there's nothing more seductive than a man singing a whole song falsetto. But yeah. when you're doing live three-part harmony singing and the mix is a sludge and the hack orchestra are playing too fast again, uh, it yes. can end up sounding a bit like... Uh, looking a, at the
3: Watchers. Yeah, it's a bit... Trying to get this done before the pub show.
2: Yeah. yeah, it's a bit of a cat's chorus, isn't it?
3: Yeah.
1: Yeah, there's a very rushed feel, I think, to the whole show. And like you say, yeah, the orchestra playing too fast songs... Dropping out of about 90, what seems like about 90 seconds. But, um, it's fascinating. It's interesting that there's a Sylvia Robson connection, um, there because mm. you do feel, you know, the that that little sort of chat at the beginning that it is, it's proto rap in a sense, isn't it? I mean, basically, that's what mm. everything is going to be fairly shortly. And of course, the falsetto will disappear forever, you know, from sort of Soul yeah. and until, uh, Pharrell comes along. Obviously, it's lovely this. Um, you know, I remember it at the, at the time. It's, um, very open minded sentiment as well, you know, in terms of the yes. other females. They're not they're not too fussy. Um, no, no, and I was I was impressed by that and I, I and I felt a bit of a heel because even at twelve I was beginning to take an interest in, in girls, but you know, I was shamefully, you know, I I was a
3: bit particular myself.
2: Yeah, not this lot, it's this lot and the and the body positive sir a lot. Yes, of course.
3: <laughs> yes. It's the it's the black R and V uh, version of I'll shag me. Yes, yes. The line that stands out, of course, is the the ones that aren't the best looking are the ones who do the best cooking, yeah. Yeah. which, you know, I remember Sarah being quite upset about when um, your man Montel Jordan... Uh, raise that again, mm. twenty years later. Yeah. Fucking up. Why weren't the moments the judges on MasterChef? You could have got it over so quickly. <laughs> they just get all the contestants <laughs> at the beginning and go, "Oh, look at that bloke there. He's all right. Fucking ugly. Con- he- he's won. Give him the prize."
1: <laughs> I think. Uh, I mean, obviously, as the song develops, the yes, the sentiments um, become a little bit uh, less laudable, really. And I think you know, essentially, it wants a kind of harem, really, in which um, the various women, yeah various virtues. So there's one that's sent off to do the cooking. There's one that, um, that you can marry into, you know, the money that you can marry into. It goes
3: on about he wants five or six of them fine ones. But let's do the maths here. One with a lot of money, plus two with a lot of honey, plus three who do them freaky things, uh, plus four bad mamas in like to weeks ten yeah, women.
2: No, uh, it's like the 12 man. days of fucklessness. <laughs> <laughs> the thing is, though, like ludicrous... Sexual politics or ludicrous politics of any kind, right, can be or not be a problem mm. in pop music, depending entirely on the mm. context and the mood and the character. And the reason why it works is that these guys don't seem like smooth, manipulative ladies' men.
3: No, right? no. they're just like lovely girls. Yeah, they, they
2: might as well be the goodies,
1: basically, sort of having their own fantasies. Yeah, you know.
2: but I mean, it, it, I mean, it might this. Impression might be compounded by the, the vest-wearing Top of the Pops Orchestra, but, I mean, mm. here, I mean, yeah, okay, they're singing slightly disrespectfully about mm. about women, but they sound more like raggedy street-corner braggarts. Yes. You know what I mean? That passing women yeah. pretend they can't hear mm. Um yeah. than, you know, people who have actually got any kind of harem.
1: Or us lot in the playground in the sort of second year at my school, you know, bragging to each other of, yeah, uh, oh. Our fake birds.
2: Yeah, so it works as a sort of a teenage boy mm. song. Like, you know, those uh, garage punk records mm. like uh, Let's Talk About Girls? Mm. Right? It's yeah, your- I gotta love them all, babe, not just a few. It's really, it's like, it's about being an adolescent and living in this mm. hormone haze, mm. wank fantasy nightmare world, which is never quite a- extinguished in adulthood. Mm. But as an adolescent, you just have no control and no method of turning this fire into something useful you're just walking around in torment all the time you know but it's like that that half understood energy has made for busloads of fantastic pop records you know it's Mm. like this would be a problem here if it was set up to sound seductive and smooth you know uh but it, no, it comes out all jumpy and uncontrolled. Also, and also, it's being sung by not especially attractive men.
1: Yeah, let let's not beat yeah. around the bush. There's, I think so you know, from a female perspective, there's a very much of an in your dreams vibe about it. Yeah, yeah.
2: this stuff is always about catching the lyric at the right angle, um, mm. and they. I think sometimes you could do you could do that because you're clever, and sometimes you can just fluke it right. And I think they may have fluked this. But they have mm. still fluked it, right? But I mean, it's the, these are the rules by which it works. It's not some, you know, uh, a boring sort of point missing twenty first century thing where every song has to have a certain political worldview, as though it was a person, you know, as though it was like a a college student or something, rather than a piece of low art with its own dream logic rules. You know what I mean? It's like no, there's this sounds stunted and silly. And that's its saving grace. Do you know what I mean?
3: I'll direct the pulp crazy youngsters towards "Sexy Mama" by The Moments. That's a fucking tune that is. Oh, yeah. Recorded a couple of years previously, I believe.
2: What's delayed the whatnots? Does anyone know?
3: Don't know. The Moments are over on. uh, They're over here on tour at the moment, so that'll be it. And they're nicely (laughs) turned out, though. The Moments—they've got this powder blue. Three piece suit thing going on, but no no shirts on underneath, so it looks like they're wearing a um, sort of like bra tops. Mm. <laughs> but they, they carry it off because it's the mid seventies. It's it's getting on for the final years where you can wear this kind of stuff and uh, mm. expect to get a result uh, yeah. on top of the pops, isn't it? But uh, I love it, man. I mean, yeah. if if I yeah. ever if I ever got married, I'm really torn between my stag night being everybody has to dress up like the moments doing this mm. or. Or everybody has to dress up like gang members of the Warriors and we recreate the whole film in Nottingham. (laughs) (laughs) So the following week, girls jumped six places to number three and stayed there for two weeks. The follow-up, Dolly My Love, got to number 10 in August of this year and then have one more proper hit with Jack in the Box, which got to number 7 in February of 1977. They left the Stang label in 1978 to sign with Polydor, but as the label owned the rights to the name The Moments, they had to call themselves Ray, Goodman and Brown and are still going to this day if you discount a death or two, it's a bit of a triggers broom situation. You the the four today.
1: Tops, yeah,
2: yeah. yeah, yeah. Super
3: fine, mighty
2: fine, sugar and spice, everything. Dang, ha, ha, ha. especially at night. <laughs> That's lovely. Moments and the number nine sound of Ask All Girls. You know the version of The Ugly Duckling by Danny Kay. We have a brand new version of the same song by a very, very funny comedian called Mike Reed. In fact, it's a very funny version of The Ugly Duckling. Listen now.
3: There once was an ugly duckling With feathers all stubby and brown And the other birds in so many words went "Boy!" Mush! Get out! Yeah, you! Get out. Move your
2: Get
3: out of town! Hey, that's lovely, says Tony, before telling us about a song and how funny the comedian who's covered it is, and how funny the versions he's done of it is. It's the Ugly Duckling by Mike Reed. Born in Acne in 1940, Michael Reed began his career as a stand-up comedian who fell into acting as a stuntman in the 1960 film Spartacus and then as an extra in Department S and Doctor Who and then a stunt driver in Casino Royale, The Dirty Dozen and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. He was also a bit player in various episodes of The Saint and Roger Moore's underwater stunt double until he was fired for continually taking the piss out of Moore's thinning hair we we'll get down to Pountney's, Roger. After an appearance in the film version of Steptoe and Son as the comedian before the stripper comes on, he became a key component of The Comedians, the massively successful ITV stand-up show. This led to a record deal with Pi Records in 1973 and the LP Terrific Mike Reed Sings Cockney Songs. But it, and the single from it, Life Without You, failed to chart. This is his third single, and the follow-up to Freezing Cold in 89, Tuzo, a cover of Freezing Cold in 89, Cuzo, the 1972 single by Italian singer-songwriter Adriano Celentano with gibberish faux-American lyrics, which also failed to chart. This time, however, he's gone for a cover of a song from the 1952 film Hans Christian Andersen, originally performed by Danny Kay, which he had worked into his stand-up act and was his favourite song. To the astonishment of everyone, it's a new entry this week at number 34, and here he is, in the studio. Oh, Mm. eh? Don't give me Mike Reed.
2: (laughs) (laughs) But as ever, when you have two people with almost the same name the first thing you have to think about is who would win in a bare-knuckle fight mm. oh, surrounded well. by braying onlookers. But, yeah, in this case, yeah. there's not a lot of uncertainty, no. is there?
3: No, no, certainly
2: not. <laughs> Three seconds of the bespectacled Saturday morning drip and having <laughs> that <Abbie's> fucking guitar shaft right up his fucking arse. He's like, run around now, you cunt. Yeah, go! You fucking mug. <laughs> I'll give him fucking tenders. Yeah, because one thing, one thing you can say for Mike Reed, Reid, R-E-I-D, <laughs> is that he's not like Jack Duckworth. Like, you know Bill Tommy, mm. who played Jack Duckworth, who's yes. off-screen, would swan about in a white suit mm. with a pocket square, <laughs> like into tinted specks, smoking cheroot. Vince Sinclair, his alter ego. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he's a well, See, when like, I yeah, first, like tell a few jokes, maybe you heard of me. Took yeah. the Duckworth role, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, perhaps there's a little of me and Jack, mm. you know, he's still <laughs> fucking <laughs> actors yeah. in it, it's like class traitors mm. and bellends. Mm. At least Mike Reed is the real thing, mm. he's as yes. repulsive and seethingly aggressive and overbearing. As he appears on screen. He's the absolute template for Cockney Wanker in Viz, isn't he? I mean, oh, if
1: God. You yeah. can just absolutely <laughs> see it. But um, but at the time, I probably would have felt different. I mean, it's funny now to hear like the word mush. When did you last hear a good mush these days? Yeah. I you know, get it occasionally in repeats of Steptoe and Son and things like that. Woosh. You know, I, mm. I can only think about this, that, like, obviously it's a kind of compendium of, like, um, you know, um, sort of rhyming slang, you know, cop the boat race and all that kind of thing, and, and like, you know, the cargo yes. or whatever. I can only imagine, really, that in the, part of the appeal of someone like Mike Reed is that, like, Cockneys and people from London were as gratified to see themselves represented on TV as black people were um, in Love Thy Neighbour.
3: I mean, we are one year removed from Yus, my yes, dear. Yes,
1: yes. That's yeah, come. which was derived from Romany Jones, wasn't it? Do you remember the vehicle for James right, yes. Beck, who looked very ill in it, and about six months into it, he died. Um, which yes. I always thought was actually to do with was, was to do with the travelling community, that it was actually, you know, to do with Romany. Really. But it's not at all. It's just people very, very sort of down in the luck lo- living in static caravans. Um, but, um, mm. yeah, yeah, and he was in that. But um, I have a confession to... Well, it's not really... No, it's not a confession. Is it a confession? Um, but well, we'll be the yeah, judge of that. Well, David. there was time, you know, there was, it was we all three of us. There was, there's, so, there's basically, there's me and my two younger brothers who didn't always take me entirely seriously as an older brother. Um, mm-hmm. took the piss of it now and again. And I do recall that we were off somewhere in my dad's Renault, and um, there were all three of us in the back. And of course, this came on the radio, and I'd probably only heard it a couple of times, and um, I started crying. Oh. In the midsection section, you know, when he kind of oh. goes into exile, uh, it always kind of puts <gasps> a lump to my throat. Now, I have look, I I don't cry in public, and it's unfortunately I'm just one of the old school that kind. Of, I'm not like John Peel or whatever. um you know. I, I kind of have code about things like that, and this was the most terrible thing. Cry, I've cried. I really had to kind of stop, this. but you know, it's a bit enclosed in the back of a Renault, and of course. They noticed you know because I'm <laughs> desperately trying it's like trying to hold piss in or something yeah. it's a confession yeah. David yeah. and I, I, was, I was I was crying you know, and I could see a little tear rolling down the side of my face my brother Tony and the youngest one said ah you yeah. You're fucking crying. We didn't say fucking, because my dad was in the car. You're crying, aren't you? (laughs) Ah, you soft get. (laughs) I've seen this one. He's (laughs) crying. He's, oh, my
3: green, oh, the ugly duckling. I'm so sad. I
1: can't (laughs) swing. Sitting at the far end, you know, so I can't swing for him. You know, ah, bad skit, bad skit. That was if that was your worst thing. Ah, bad skit on you, eh? Hey, bad skit. I don't know if anybody remembers bad skit, but that was, um, you know, it's a no. bit like it's not very much for Leeds thing. Skit, bad skit. It's like you know that you you know you, you you've been thoroughly humiliated, basically. Right. Yeah. So this, I mean, I didn't, you know, I managed not to cry this time when I listened back to it, you know.
3: But um, no. Yeah. So I mean, because you knew what was coming. Yeah, I suppose there is that. I mean, you I know, mean, it, were you delighted by the end of the song when it turns out all right?
1: Well, of course, yeah, yeah. But and then laughed
3: at your brothers. Well, no, I no. Mean, I mean, it was there was
1: no getting around it. It was it was no. a thorough humiliation. It had to happen in front of
2: my two younger brothers, the worst possible people in, in front of <laughs> whom this could happen. Were you touched by the moral of this song that? Breeding is all that matters, and nothing you can say or do or think will ever increase or decrease your worth.
1: I did. I didn't look into it that deeply. No, I didn't. I no. It was. I was just sad for the
2: for the duckling. Basically, Forced it's true though, and, isn't it? Well, yeah. You're yeah. either a, you're either a swan, yeah, in which case it'll all come good, mm. or else you're mm. a fat in duckling, yeah, and you should know your place and take your lumps. I agree. Right in the beak. <laughs> now it's weird being given the ugly duckling as a hero Mm. because it's like kids having kim kardashian as a role model right Mm. people complain Mm. about the so-called hollowness of her fame you know that's you know who cares about that's not the problem the problem is that it's not really aspirational because how can you aspire to be an heiress you either are one or you're not right Mm. and i don't want to sound like you know some hippie educationalist but you don't learn good lessons there no right? like what do you learn from just looking up to people who are lucky right mm. the rich man in his garden the poor man at his gate god made them high and lowly each to his own estate is mm. everything that i object to which is why i hate this song so much no i i agree that god. um
3: He's having a go at Hans christian anderson now yeah Fuck off. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree
1: that basically a value, an insidious value system remains intact at the end of this song, doesn't
2: it? Oh, yeah. But I'll take it from Danny Kaye before <laughs> I'll take it from Mike Reed. Do you know what I mean? Mm. We, we've got to talk about this Cockney Wanker thing because there are dislikable regional stereotypes from every corner of mm. Britain, but the Cockney Wanker is the capital of dislikable <laughs> regional stereotypes right? or at least the administrative center just assuming control of every situation despite a lack of relevant expertise or understanding right because the key trait of almost every dislikable regional stereotype is uh, a blend of swaggering overbearing self-assurance and a sort of deep dangerous defensiveness and you get that with uh, like cocky, chimp-walking Manx and whining, finger-pointing Scousers and drunkenly unpredictable Glaswegians oh, and, uh, you know, hectoring, close-minded Yorkshiremen <laughs> and uh, what else? Sinister, wicker-man-building <laughs> West Country people, you know. Because it's it's <laughs> patriotism in microcosm.
3: That's what's great about living in Nottingham. You can't pin anything on us. No, no fucker knows about us yeah, that obscure.
2: Yeah, no one cares. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But that no, too. but it's it's a choice, though, isn't it? Yeah, it's a choice. It's a hard adherence to the worst of local norms mm. and a, a sort of boorish civic pride. Like even like even like the dumb, docile, brummy, mm. Right? You think, well, that doesn't really apply. No, it's there's a variant of West Midlands stereotype that has a sour, empty, smugness mm. to it. Right like you know retired spring maker harold court is an <laughs> yes. example of that which long-term listeners will know well uh, uh, so you still don't believe it no why not mm. well, i don't <laughs> well, you know. but it's it's everywhere right when people feel that they're uh, simultaneously representing their tiny portion of the world and are represented by it i mean it's a it's a horrible situation to put yourself in, but it's the soft option for people who've got nothing of their own, right? Um, and a, a, a professional dislikable regional stereotype like Mike Reed is the worst of all, because not only is it overwhelmingly obnoxious, but you think, hang on a minute, this person hasn't just fallen into this. They've got the wit and initiative to make a buck out of a kind of controlled performance of themselves. Right. Therefore, they should know better.
3: I don't know. I mean, in the context of 1975, we haven't been clubbed about the head with uh, Cockney stereotyping as much as we would in the 80s.
2: Mm. Yeah, I suppose.
3: You know, this is this is pre-Buckle Boys and um, Up the Elephant and Round the Castle and Chaz and Dave and EastEnders and this all that. It. There
1: wasn't an awful lot of representation of this kind of, like, yeah, strongly accented character, which... Yeah.
3: And this is the year of Funky Moped, isn't it, as well? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, defend that, Taylor, if you dare.
1: <laughs> oh, no. Oh, oh no. Yeah, well, well, of course, the B-side was the um, it, it was the Magic Roundabout parody, wasn't it? Yes. Which he says, piss off at the end. I remember our music teacher playing that to us on a Friday
2: afternoon as an end-of-term treat, and we all fell about. <laughs> but you see, the main question raised by this record is why? Because technically, there's no reason why a shit, thug club comic shouldn't cover a a, a danny k children's favorite and instead of changing it and making it blue so it's about sex or something you know like magic roundabout shit just do it as a kid song but in his own mm. in his own imitable fashion it's you but you rack your brain for any reason why anyone would actually think of it or decide that this was mm. a good idea And they just don't come. This is the
3: dying days of um, giving anyone remotely famous a record deal. Mm. And he's done better chart-wise than, say, Oh, What a Gay Day by Larry Mm, Grayson or Rock Steady, the Deedle Lee song by Little and Lodge when they uh, had a a reggae song. It's strange that this one got through and and the others didn't. But, you know, thank God. Thank God this is the only one.
1: Look, it made a boy cry.
3: Yes. Can I say?
1: A northern boy... That's a hard mm. thing to do. So he obviously had something yeah. about it.
3: I saw Mike Reed in uh, Torquay in 1994. And I have to say that he was probably the best stand-up I've ever seen. You know, I haven't seen many. Not really that interested in stand-up mm. comedy. But he, he had the audience in the palm of his hand. There were other comedies. There was a
1: guy called Charlie Smithers, who my grandma had a record on occasion. Who would bung on the old radiogram. And I think he was, yeah, he was kind of London-based. But all of his material was about sort of gays and Pakistanis and stuff like that. Uh, just lengthy... Routines. I'm not. Sure. I, I don't know th- to, to what extent Mike Reid ever did that kind of stuff. He,
3: he was blue, hmm. but he wasn't racist. Yes. You know, by this time he is in 1975. He is a polished hmm. comedian. But fucking hell, tough crowd. <laughs> Alberto Tarantini's back with his equally sullen mate, and uh, him and all the kids, are, they're all standing around wearing mm. the Kenny Badgers. Got this sullen look on their face as if they've been made to look at a cage full of locusts mm. in a biology mm. class.
2: Yeah, there's a few lads at the back who are really digging it.
3: Well, y- shortly yeah. along
2: <laughs> at the Cockneyisms, oh yeah. I mean, there's, pro- there's possibly rising impatience at this
1: point, isn't there? There's
3: two girls at the front who are obviously mm. in on the deal. Uh, they have both got Duckling mm, puppets, yes. yeah, which they forget to wave mm. about right through the song, and one of them's got um, a T-shirt that says "Oi, Mush the Ugly Duckling."
2: <laughs> I'm just I'm that age where I had to grow up listening to Junior Choice, yeah, uh, helmed in those days by Ed Stewart, yes, uh, appropriately enough, years before uh, Blackburn was demoted to such <laughs> ignominious depths. And the thing about Junior Choice was that. The records never changed. It was the same yeah. every week. Um, yeah. And people would write in with requests. But there's no need, because you were going to hear My Brother by Terry Scott, yes. whether you liked it or not. Um, <laughs> or if you were lucky, Right Said Fred by Cribbo, which is a properly imaginative and enjoyable record. Or that um, I Saw a Mouse, where, whatever that's called, There on the Stair, yeah. Yeah, Windmill yeah. in Old Amsterdam. Yes. Amsterdam uh, yeah. But this song was another perennial in both versions. And, you know... Even then, not pleasant to my tiny ears. Never mind the, the current worn-out, perpetually ringing ears. But it's subjected to this now, and uh, I don't care for the the queasy sentimentality of Danny Kaye's version of this. Mm. But I mean, fucking hell, this wasn't required. <laughs> look, the what it is the it just—I look at this, and all I can see is it's like having a bully dad on the stage. You know, <laughs> putting on a show for their nippers right and it's always it's just so deeply repulsive like a a can of london grill having this <laughs> this unwanted sort of aggro presence in the nursery do you know what i mean it just mm. doesn't feel Right, it's stay out of the kids universe just be what you are do your aggressive thin-lipped smile uh work blue and wear a tweed trilby and a ski jacket. Um, <laughs> or was that Pete Beale? Wear a, wear a tweed flat cap and a ski jacket. <laughs> Keep the British end up where it belongs, right? Somewhere dark and unhygienic. Don't go on Top of the Pops, dress like an Austin Allegro driver in a public information film. Yes. Imagining that yeah. you have charm and trying to be a children's entertainer. It's the way he, he lapses into that tender crooning voice a couple of times to yeah. show his but versatility. At least, at least he didn't have the domestic life of Arthur Mullard. Yes. Well, this is true. But he does have that stupid fucking daddy dog thing. You know, it's its like <laughs> it's like one of those blokes where everyone has to indulge his little turn, or else fear is wrath, you know.
3: Wall Wallop!
2: It's like you better laugh at his jokes, just (laughs) in case, because he wanted to be a star and making himself the centre of attention. Now it's uh, you know, if you puncture that, Mm. he might just take out the grim reality on you. (laughs) You know, there's always that air about it. Do I make myself clear, sunshine? I'd be compelled to punch you on your beak. Yeah, have a chuckle as he shows off his tender side, or else, you know. <laughs> you listen to me, my son. Why? You're not going to say anything good. You know. It's like these blokes who have to be the Kim Jong-un of their own family, you know what I mean? Or their horrible pub. It's
1: projection, though, isn't it? It's not like he's Bob Hoskins in The Long Good Friday. I mean, yeah, it's just yeah.
2: minnows fronting, <laughs> isn't it? Desperate. But at least he loved his dear old mum. <laughs> okay, All, what this really needs is for him to turn into Bill Tarmy <laughs> at the end. <laughs> With a, a glide and a whistle and a snowy white suit. Now there's a class act, right? That would, that would be an inspirational story.
3: So the following week, the Ugly Duckling jumped 12 places to number 22. And three weeks later, it got to number 10. Its highest position. Fuck it, this is a top 10 song, everyone. He went mm. back to the Danish well with a cover of The King's New Clothes for the follow up, but it failed to chart. What a shame, man. He could have turned up with just a fucking dicky bow on on top of the pops. Could have predated that <laughs> by 20 years. And he went on to present Runaround later that year. Sorry, Around later that year and appear as Arthur Mulod's brother in the ITV sitcom, Yus My Dear. He had one last throw of the dice in 1999 when he recorded a cover of The More I See You with Barbara Windsor, but it stalled at number 46 in April of that year, and he died at the age of 67 in Marbella in 2007, and this single was played at his funeral. not <laughs> I. I think I'll go down the road and give some of these dinners a bit of GBH
2: in the parson's nose. There's one over there. Oi, cocky! Who's a pretty boy now, then? Look at that dolly swan. I think I'll go and blow down her ear once or twice round the lake. Large portion of in the barbie, do that.
1: Welcome to All Rather Mysterious, the podcast that aims to unlock the mysteries of the past with the key of fact. My name is John Rain.
0: My name is Eleanor Morton.
1: My name is David Reed. Please join us as we present to you mysteries that have baffled
3: the world. You heard any noises?
1: What about um, a door creaking? Uh,
3: no, uh, you don't have to do it. That weird kadunk that yeah, lights going probably. off makes for some reason in <laughs> films.
1: All Rather Mysterious.
0: In a given
1: month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a
0: professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today.
2: There it is, Mark Reed. That's a classic, isn't it? Does it beautifully. Well, that's a number called the Ugly Duckling. Right now, we go to the number one sound on Top of the Pops. What do you know? One of the most popular groups in the country right now. Girls, they are there at last. Originally done sometime back by the Four Seasons. It's called Bye Bye Baby, the Bay City Rollers. you hate me
0: after what I say can't put it off any longer. Just gotta tell her anyway.
3: The one girl I want to marry. Big tits and an airy <laughs> Sorry, I can't not sing that. So it's, it's, it's ingrained in me. Oh, oh, by the way, the next line which we sang was Gee, I wish you would pee all over me. Yeah. Very good. Nothing Quite yeah. go ahead for uh, an infant yeah. school in 1975, adding a bit of scat to yeah. it.
2: Mm. Amazing foresight as well.
3: <laughs> We've already covered the rollers and this single in chart music number six. It's the follow-up to All of Me Loves All of You, which got to number four in October of 1974, is a cover of the 1965 four-season single, and, as admitted by manager Tam Payton a few weeks ago, is the first single that the band have actually played on with their own instruments and everything. It entered the chart at number eight two weeks ago, moved up to number two last week, and this week it's knocked if by Telly Savalas off the toppermost of, of the poppermost for their first number one. Oh, it's all about the rollers at this point, isn't it? yeah it's their show i mean taylor you're too young and as i pointed out when we last covered this song the rollers weren't making that much of an impression on the females in the first year of west glade school but david you're practically in an older generation at this time so what what, what was it like at your school well st- i i went to an all-boys school uh, Oh, so and um
1: yeah and and i suppose i would have had mixed feelings about the bay city rollers on the one hand they had the kind of the thrust that I was looking for, <laughs> but they were yes the the whole girly mania thing I think was a sort of black mark against them. Plus, I always thought I didn't really like the cut of Les McKeon's jib. You know, I thought he was a mm. bit sort of I don't know, Weasley faced. Has um, something that really going around or thinking or like he was somewhat Exactly. Yeah, I would have probably quite you know grudgingly enjoyed. This single on a certain level, whatever. I mean, Mania, Yes, it was. It, was this is kind of continuum of like mania ever since the, well, since the Osmonds really. And it's funny because mm. there'd been a kind of ten-year delay, really. I mean, the whole Beatlemania thing, you know, of like people throwing, you know, practically throwing themselves off balconies at airports or whatever, probably subsided by. About, you know the mid 1960s there's a kind of a long delay really before the yeah. Osmonds thing and then immediately bay city rollers pick up the slack it just seems yes. feels like a kind of undifferentiated phenomenon really you know and the there has to be a different object of these kind of maniacal affections um But it's kind of pretty arbitrary, really. The the, the Tartan thing is interesting because, I mean, they are... I mean, you see them performing here and the drummers kind of smiling sort of sweetly to camera. You know, they are like Lisa Simpson's non-threatening boys magazine (laughs) fodder. Um, But at the same time, you know, this is the era of the Tartan threat. And I think, you know, mm. there is a sort of sense of the sort of prototype punk thing going on in that respect. I mean, it's also like the time, like the Tartan armour that used to come down every year for the Home Internationals yeah. um, and, you know, to Wembley. And um, I think it was slightly later than this that, um, they, you know, when Scotland won one nil, and they all sort of hung off across the crossbar and snapped it. It yes. was 77, wasn't it? Yeah. But it, generally in that era, there was this sense of, you know, the the boisterous tart, tartan the threat you know the um the mm. um the caledonians kind of rushing down from the hills to kind of um you know give the english a bit of a biffing and um yeah and i think there was definitely a sort of resonance about about the tartan that despite you know as i say their kind of ostensible non-threateningness you know there, there there was something there was something potent
3: about um, well they
2: were scrappers mm. the rollers they were picked mm. off the streets yeah most of them
3: mm. Basic rollers, I didn't know what to make of them at the time. The thing that put me against them was they all looked like William Bell. Who lived on the other half of the school and was stereotypical 70s agro merchant. Uh, mm. And we weren't playing football yet at infant school. So our kind of like playtime diversion was to stand at the top of a grass bank behind a massive fence and watch William Bell throw bricks at us <laughs> over the fence. And we'd taunt him. Mm. And uh, uh, he never hit anyone, <clears throat> but you know, he was trying to. Yeah. And, you know, to me, William Bell could have been a member of the Bay City Rollers. But
1: I think it was extremely important that they had that kind of ingratiating aspect about them. You know, they couldn't do be like all... Oh Peter Cook in Bizazzled, you know, you mean nothing to me, you know, they couldn't have any order and it couldn't be any kind of surliness or standoff or even any sort of sense of menace at all. So, you know, they they had to be very, very ingratiating and smiley. Perhaps precisely to kind of counterbalance all these other
2: things. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's they were offering their young female fans the same release that the those girls' brothers would have got at the football match. Mm, mm, Yes. Yeah. yeah, rather than anything romantic. Yeah.
3: Then again, your older brother yeah. wasn't wetting himself at Anfield, at <laughs> yeah, Kevin Keegan. Uh, Terry T- McDermott. <laughs> yeah.
2: Uh, yeah, I caught the long tail of the Bay City Rollers. They were still on telly a lot uh, when I was a yes. kid, even though they were no longer what they were, because, you know, they yeah. were... Involved in that Mike Mansfield world, where you know you'd still get a bit of a a push, even when nobody gave a shit. But
3: I mean, by that time, to you, Taylor, I'm guessing there'd be like a a humanoid animal quackers.
2: Yeah, (laughs) oh yeah. But so it's only since that I've gone back and you know educated myself. Mm. the rollers and truly it is the bleakest story ever told oh, isn't it i mean in most of the sorry stories of rock and pop you know people get hurt and left behind or they die or go mad but at least someone somewhere is having a great time yes. and getting rich and living happily ever after but not in the rollers story everyone involved is in a nightmare just mm-hmm. continuously. and I mean, even Tam Payton, right? The, the evil puppet master. Yes, I don't think he ever got close to true happiness or even basic satisfaction. And what makes the Roller story so depressing in a way as well, I mean, depressing as opposed to traumatising, is there's a relative lack of drama in it too. There's a lot of really awful, sinister shit going on, but there's rarely a flashpoint or a big reveal or like a Savile moment of out-and-out horror. Mm. Uh, Even as a story uh, to hear and tell, there's no release. It's just this drag, this oppressive drag that just seems to all be about sustained control and denial and a sort of vague, looming threat and emptiness, you know, Mm. and misery and waste. It's got that... This is not a group that anyone looks at and thinks, I'd like to be in this band. No, no. No, I mean, you know, Tam Payton was, in case anyone doesn't know, was a rather unpleasant predatory man with a taste for younger lads who carefully selected the members of his bands for, shall we say, extra musical reasons. Mm -hmm. Um, And, you know, however much did or didn't go on between he and they, which is a matter for at least some debate, what's certain is that he absolutely forbade all of them from having any fun whatsoever, yeah. mm. or any contact with girls for as long as their as long as their run lasted. Right? Which I mean, it must have been a bit harsh for young, mostly hetero lads at, at number mm. one in the charts. I mean, fucking it. You're right.
1: The Basie Terrells is, is yeah. a particularly bleak story. I think that anybody on that particular pop treadmill, or whatever, there's some there's immense hardship. You know, I think you know it would be. It'd be Probably... A, a, a nicer life or an easier life and a less strenuous life to sort of be a, I don't know, a member of Joy Division or something like that than it would to yeah. be an, even Brother Beyond or something like that or Spice. I mean, like sporty Spice, whatever. And you know, talking about how the whole time at the kind of zenith of their career just being perpetually hungry because you know they going to keep their weight down. And it's just um, you know it's just things like that. I mean, I, I, it's, it's it, you're right. It's not an enviable existence at all, and this one particularly unenviable. Yeah,
2: I mean, the you know normally you see people who are a bit down from the 70s and they're alright they're philosophical and just their hands shakes a bit as they raise their fag to their mouth Mm -hmm. you know Um, but the key fact here I think is that over time there were what about eight or nine people who were in the rollers at some point and I think five or six of them have since attempted suicide and that's not a coincidence Um, because not only was their rise to fame so bumpy and compromised their heyday was just a blur of overwork and frustration and zero artistic fulfilment. And then their decline was just as painful as if they'd been having a good time, right, as well as predictably horrific uh, financially. Um, And it was drawn out to the point of agony. You know, they really didn't want to let go. And yet they seemed to be falling forever. You know, like half of these nuts are still still trying to make comebacks this century you know what I mean and it's all rubbish it was all rubbish that was the thing mm. there's a really upsetting but amusing clip from uh German TV of course from yes. about 1988 where the 30 something and now rather adult Les McEwen is performing his European hit She's a Lady uh mm. in a in a rainy, half-empty funfair in fucking Mannheim or Paderborn or some lifeless ditch in Germany, and he's serenading a hideous animatronic Miss Piggy and oh, no. headbutting a cardboard cutout of Joan Collins. Um, <laughs> It's—I've never—and at the beginning, he has to come sprinting up this walkway onto the stage for a dynamic entrance, right? But it's been pissing down all day. And the sky is like the the dead mouse belly. And he (laughs) comes running up and he's obviously, you know, perhaps had a few or a bit of something. And he slips on the wet ramp and just falls flat on his face with the cameras rolling and scrambles up just a bit too late to reach the mic in time to start lip syncing. So the song begins without him. And you're looking at it thinking, Christ, somebody had to be there doing that. You know yeah. what I mean? And it's like, everything about it, it's like an icy wind full of crematorium dust just blowing through a hole in the middle of your soul. <laughs>
3: Jesus Christ.
2: And mm. there's about 10 years of that for these poor bastards.
3: I mean, great suffering usually produces great art. But, <laughs> well, <laughs> but yes. What is there in the oeuvre of the Bay City Rollers to, well, to hold up? Mm. I mean, Simon's made a strong case for shang lang
2: Yeah, shang lang and this, basically. Mm. This is yeah. the rollers
3: at their this, peak. Yeah, you know, this is travelling. best.
2: Travelling at the speed of darkness.
3: Yeah, I mean, right about this time, they were in their twirl king period, weren't they? You know, the yo-yo team and the Simpsons coming up to bedazzle <laughs> yeah. the youth before being slung in the back of a van to go on to mm. the next thing. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I love how this slowly is mutating into a Simpsons podcast. Yes. But yeah, I mean, the the Four Seasons version of this song is obviously much better, mm. right? Like it doesn't sound thin and cheap and it's got good singers well, on yes, it. Well, yes,
3: indeed. I remember listening to David Hamilton on that radio I talked about earlier. And he played, the like Tony Blackburn would do with reggae singles, he played the Four Seasons version straight afterwards. And I was outraged. Yeah. Mm. I thought, what, what a fucking cod, singing someone else's song and pretending it's your own. No, I wasn't impressed by that. Mm. Yeah. I was still young. Mm. <laughs> still had a lot to learn.
2: Yeah. It just shows the big problem for the rollers musically, which was the sort of airless, desiccated sound that they had and, like, the Ooh. ban on energy and aggression on these mm. records. So yeah, even yeah. when they get a half-decent song like this or, or Shang-A-Lang, it sounds like an empty room, you know? And yeah. they, you look at them performing, they've got these weak, fixed smiles, and, you know, they've got no sympathy with the material yeah. and, no. like, zero exuberance mm. or mm. magnetism. I mean, Les always tries hard, you know? Mm. You know but yeah. just generally there's a sort of you know even looking beyond the teen idol thing just to try and analyze it there's a sort of almost like a semiotic muteness to this you know what i mean so there's nothing mm. to engage with. But that All seems can... to be kind of mandatory,
1: though, with these kind of yeah. teen pop phenomena. There's got to be some sort of austerity. Yeah, there's got to be a ban on energy and aggression. There's got to be a ban on enjoying yourself and a ban on sex and a ban on food or whatever. Uh, but it just seems to be a, a, a mandatory feature uh, people, you know, on, on that. You know, or if you're the, the Jacksons, you know, you've got to be kind of like you know, the appalling despotic regime of Pop, pop Joe. It um, just seems to be mandatory, Um, You know, maybe there are examples of people who enjoy kind of teen popular, who are able to kind of thoroughly enjoy the life and give to their richest and fullest and
2: the best of their energies as they do it. But um, I suspect it might be hard to come by. But at least the Jacksons sound like that's what they were doing. Hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like this lot, it's, you look at them and it's like they just... Yeah, It's like they mean nothing. It's All they are is icons of their own unhappiness yeah. and their
1: fans' desperation. I think that's that's right? a good point, that their actual, yes, the desperate listlessness of it is kind of, um, it does sort of shine through, doesn't it? I mean, what's strange yeah. about this, though, is you looking at the audience and all the way through I've been kind of thinking, yeah, people are a little bit under-enthusiastic and sort of tetchy and they're kind of clutching their sort of tartan scarves because there's only one thing they're really here for. Um, and they look as though they're there under sufferance, as quite often Top of Pops audiences do, and I thought, well, maybe there's going to be a great explosion of energy when, you know, one of yeah. the biggest bands in the UK finally comes on. And there isn't. And it's clear no. that for whatever reason, I, think, I don't think that, like, you know, the producer there is just like, my God, we've got a pretty listless generation here. You know, we were really hoping for some energy. And I think there is actually a ban on energy from the audience, on, you know, but obviously it's, it's very yeah, difficult. the BBC's clearly dumped yeah, it down. Yeah, they, they, they seem to sort of like, you know, audiences that are hand-picked for unenthusiasm because anything too exuberant, I mean, you know, this is a group that have got people as I say, you know, sort of like hanging off the edge of balconies screaming and screaming. You would have thought that mm. like, okay, we're gonna need about, you know, volunteers of seventy year age people to watch the Bay City rollers and be like six feet away from them. They've probably yeah. deliberately gone for people who don't even know who they are, you know, they're kind of you know, swats <laughs> or whatever, it would prefer to be at top of the form or something.
3: As Simon said, he probably sent out a floor manager to give everyone a stern talk saying, You're right, you yeah. you know, go to the toilet now before the Bay City <laughs> yeah. rollers come on. Yeah. <laughs> I mean obviously when you see Shang-A-Lang, you know, it's ITV, yeah. you know, mm. old Muriel Young has mm. obviously, you know, just ramped up the screaming and, yeah. and and all that kind of stuff. And look what happens, yeah. you know, Cliff kills a police officer.
1: It's as if they're being contravention to some sort of policy laid down by Lord Reith or something like that. If anybody yes. would sort of unseemly enthusiasm would kind of uh, upset the equilibrium of the bbc
2: and the tone they're attempting to maintain all the way through yeah but, but the trouble is when you see shangalang i mean it's like the, look the the uh, another thing with the rollers is it's hard to understand their teen appeal because they're not very sexy right mm-hmm. normally no. with a pin-up band you can at least uh, you can at least see what the girls are meant to be screaming at right you look at the rollers and even in these these famished times of chip <laughs> complexions you know and poor physical <laughs> conditioning they're not very good looking
3: i don't know i mean eric is obviously the heartthrob of the band yeah
2: not letting on that he's almost 30
3: and les is essentially uh, if les mccune wasn't in a band he'd be he would be one of those um 20 year olds who uh hang outside schools in his car
2: right uh, yeah
3: you know what i mean <laughs> yeah not in a never go with strangers way but in a you know, in an LL Cool J way, shall we say. Yeah, yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. But the the thing with shang when you watch it, it's, yes, the fans are going absolutely apeshit. And then the rollers come out and, you know, it's not like they were hugely charismatic individuals, you know. No. But they can hardly speak. It's fucking embarrassing. Yeah. It's a really depressing show,
3: shang Yeah, it is, isn't it's it? It's
2: got that. Mid seventies. What is
3: impersonation of Frank Spencer is appalling, oh, isn't it?
2: <laughs> it's got that it's got that mid seventies sort of mugginess and lack of sharpness. And that sort mm. of like it's sort of smeared in lard, like shoddy, sort of low quality feeling. Um mm. like for a start it's hosted by these these dummies and they're reading out lines as it's they sound like the kids who didn't get picked to speak in primary school assembly you know what i mean yeah there's nothing
3: or or why don't you yeah
2: there's nothing to hold it together um because they have no personalities and they can't deliver the lines and then there's Um, nothing else going on with them to sustain 25 minutes of television right no never mind a series like a seemingly endless series of 25 minute episodes um so what happens is, straight away, in desperation, it lapses into that crap retro thing that you always get as yeah. a fallback. You know, that sort of that grubby mid-70s bubblegum, right? And it's all controlled by men of a certain age who, for the first time in the short history of pop music, are young enough to have their own experiences of pop music. Um, mm. They think they're still in touch enough to make decisions on behalf of the audience. But in fact, they're also old enough to have a gnawing nostalgia for their own youth. So you end up with this slow motion 50s revival that begins yes. at the, the tatty end of glam rock. Right, All the futuristic energy of glam rock burns out and you're just left with the old riffs, which is all these people understand. Um, so yeah. in shang you every week you, you get that mini history lesson. Where the rollers yes. have to lecture an audience of completely <laughs> uninterested kids about fucking Bill Haley and the comets or something. Yeah. Because some idiot thought they'd be interested or couldn't couldn't think of anything else. And you know, as educators, they're not exactly electrifying. Um No. And the the
3: And they have to bring out big Jim Sullivan as well, don't they? <laughs> so look, here's someone who can actually play an instrument massively proficiently. Yeah. Let's watch him on on an acoustic guitar.
2: Yeah. Well, I mean, if you want to know how boring shang is, you only have to watch the first episode where mm. like the very first episode where someone thinks it's acceptable television for the the beaming doofus drummer Derek, um the semi-verbal Derek Years before uh, being convicted on child pornography charges, uh, w- mm. of which he still maintains his innocence, uh, mm. which yeah, if not, at least he can say he's the least creepy-looking pedophile in seventies pop. <laughs> he's not. You wouldn't want that as your as your entry in Who's Who, but it's no. you know, there's some people would look on that with envy. So, they, <laughs> yeah, you get Derek to interview a couple of blokes from Lieutenant Pigeon about an album they've just recorded of the sounds of different kinds of trains pulling into the station and then pulling <laughs> out again. Right. My first girlfriend's dad had some albums like that. Um, but here they are. For a full five minutes, there's this yeah. confused man-child <laughs> trying to act like he cares about what is obviously the most overwhelmingly boring record ever made. And these two sort of beardy ale bores who made it uh, talking about diesel hydraulics (laughs) in (laughs) front of this sort of trapped, stultified audience of hormonal, basity rollers fanatics. And that's episode one. You know, don't come so many times you're too tired to tune in next week, will you? (laughs)
3: You
2: But they might as well have drawn the curtains and given them a slideshow of scenes from the Holy Land.
3: (laughs) Yes. But there's the uh, there's that John Craven's news round around about this time in 1975 and 1976 there were two John Craven's news round specials on the roller phenomenon. Yeah. It's the clip they always use of the girl from the West Country talking about the the merits of the rollers and the Osmonds. Yeah, and uh, you know one of them's got a tartan gimmick and the other one wears stars and stripes and who'd want to wear that because it's stupid. <laughs> and um, but the other clip is is some household where there's two girls um, sitting down in their roller gear, they put on all their roller gear to watch a television show, screaming their asses off over the Bay City Rollers while Dad sat there in a vest and a fag on, absolutely <laughs> not understanding the world anymore. <laughs> but that's always the thing, isn't it? Any teen phenomenon, it's less about the band that's causing it and more about the kids who are reacting to it. Mm, yeah. You know, the only thing worth talking about with the Bay City Rollers are the fans. Yeah, of course. The reaction. Yeah,
1: yeah. Mm. And it. May, I mean, it's possible that had they had a modicum more charisma or whatever, that they might have lasted a little longer as a sort of pop teen pop phenomenon. But probably not. Really, these things. You know, they're probably as long lived, stroke short lived, as as any other. Really, and uh, yeah. and the fact that they are everything that Taylor says for, to them is it, it's immaterial. You know, so yeah. it's something else
2: that matters.
3: Yeah, musical clackers. <laughs> <laughs>
2: it's a shame, though, isn't it? Because if you love pop music, yeah. you really want the top shit-thrown-together bubblegum band of the 70s to be good, you know, in one way or another. Yeah. But they're not. They're just yeah. aggravating and tiresome and desolate and much worse mm. than the banana splits. It's, mm, it's, what it, it's like what people mm. with no imagination imagine pop to be, uh, imagined into being. You know, Mm. the only good thing you can say about them is they don't act like heroes. (laughs) They just Mm. go out there and radiate nothingness. So at least there's no reason to hate them. You just feel bad for them. You just feel a sort of of poached egg pity and a sort of queasy distance. It's like, you know, they're like flat unrefrigerated lemonade. The mid 70s. But the tartan.
3: <laughs> yeah, they got a tartan, gimmick.
2: Yes. That's right. We don't want to be wearing
1: stars and stripes. That's stupid.
3: Yes. Oh, she also went on to say the Osmonds wear anchors. <laughs> She's quite bemused by that because only posh people wore anchors. I don't know.
1: You're absolutely right about it being far more about the fans because the energy and the madness and the noise that is unleashed by this phenomenon obviously is far, far more fascinating there's far more substance there's far more aggression there's far more There's far more everything all the things that are denied in the bay city rollers themselves
3: this tartan thing when it was announced that it's royal stewart tartan which has six different colors there was an article in june of 1975 in the observer about a factory in oldham because apparently 90 percent of all tartan in the uk was produced in oldham and there was one factory that was making 6,000 metres of Roll Stewart cloth a week. And their output had increased by 600% because of the Bay City Rollers. So, you know, at least someone's making a bit of money out of this without um, being a paedophile,
2: mm. which is yeah. nice. Makes a change. <laughs> it, was a, it was a weird little pocket of mania, wasn't yes. it? Yes. Sort of mid to late. Like, so it was this, Mulligan Tire, yeah. 1978 yeah. World yes. Cup. Yes,
3: Ali's Army, uh, yeah.
2: Mm. Yeah, Nessie. Yeah.
3: But of course, you know, this is only the beginning mm. for the Rollers at this point. The, on the cover of Melody Maker this week, announced a UK tour, and that is going to be fucking house right across the country this summer. I mean, I remember looking in the paper every morning to see if anyone had died at a Bay City Rollers gig the night before. It was fucking insane. Yeah. It turned out that they actually played a secret gig in Northern Ireland. There was a uh, newspaper article in the Daily Mirror called The Big Bay City Secret. Oh. Those new sensations of the pop world, the Bay City Rollers, revealed their big secret last night. They played before a packed house in one of the most dangerous parts of Britain, the Cregget Estate in Londonderry. Their words, not mine. <laughs> And throughout the hour-long performance, the rollers were guarded by professional IRA gunmen. (laughs) 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 They played the secret gig during a recent tour of Ireland after announcing that they were taking a couple of days' rest. At least 30 provos wearing black berets and dark glasses God of the group as they played in a church hall. Manager Tam Payton said, It was our contribution to help the young people of Ireland to forget the violence and learn what other youngsters all over the world are enjoying. Mm. It's like fucking hell, Basically, Rollers, they have their own S1Ws. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. And they make all that fuss about Mo
2: Molan. Yeah. yeah. Still, it's the. Uh, <laughs> It's nice for the IRA to welcome some Scottish people to Northern Ireland for a change.
3: (laughs) So, Bye Bye Baby would stay at number one for six weeks, finally giving way to Oh Boy by Mud in the first week of May. It would sell nearly a million copies, becoming the top-selling single of 1975 and keeping There's a Whole Lot of Loving by Guys and Dolls, Fox on the Run by Sweet and Honey by Bobby Goldsboro off number one. (laughs) The follow-up, Give a Little Love, got to number one for three weeks. And they closed out 1975 with Money Honey getting to number three in December they would go on to bring their brand of rock and roll chaos to the streets in April, (laughs) by which time they contributed to the death of a police officer, Les McEwan had knocked down and killed an old woman in his Ford Mustang, caused loads of fans to run across a racetrack in Mallory Park while Noel Edmonds John Peel, Annie Nightingale and Emperor Roscoe were having a race and Les McEwan hit a (laughs) trespassing fan in the face with an air rifle (laughs) They spent 1976 trying to break America and both their single releases, Love Me Like I Love You and I Only Want to Be With You, got to number four over here. As diminishing returns set in, the band splintered when Les and Woody started lamping each other on stage in Japan in 1978. Then they fired Tam Payton and straggled on under various isms and schisms until, well, this very day.
2: Sound the Bay City Rollers and bye bye baby we've got to say bye bye we're going to leave you with the Osmonds see you on Radio 1 tomorrow at 9 o'clock and next week for top the Pops bye bye yeah,
0: yeah.
3: Tony briefly shows his Radio 1 slot tomorrow and hopes we'll be back next week before signing off with having a party by the Osmonds We've already covered Ken, 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 and Donna in chart music number three, and this single is the follow-up to "Love Me for a Reason," which got to number one for three weeks in September of 1974. In between, "When Will I See You Again" by the Three Degrees and "Kung Fu Fighting" by Carl Douglas, the Ramadan number one of 1974. It's the second single from the LP "Love Me for a Reason" at a time when the band have come back to together after Donny Osmond has been spun off as a solo single and also as one half of Donny and Marie and family members Marie and Little Jimmy have been pushed upon the world. It's only reached number 43 on its first week of release however and three weeks later it's gone up two places from number 30 to number 28 so here's the second screening of the video or at least bits of it before we get stuck into the osmonds we've got to wheel back and come forward with something that was brought up in the last episode of chant music uh you dancing to kung fu fighting taylor yeah that happened oh yeah yeah
2: the only inaccuracy in that story is that it's often told as though i was somehow embarrassed Mm. because in fact i was having a fucking brilliant time and i only wish i could get that drunk more often
3: oh so this how times change, eh, chaps? 17 Mm. months ago, the Osmonds were so massive in the UK that they were given an entire week of nightly shows on BBC One, which peaked when they co-presented Top of the Pops with Noel Edmonds. And that episode culminated with the Osmonds dancing to the instrumental of this very single with the Three Degrees, while all the other bands stood behind them and looked on with a lean and hungry look. And no look <laughs> was leaner or hungrier than the look being shot at the Osmonds by the Bay City Rollers, who were on that very episode with Summer Love Sensation. <sighs> Well, look who are the masters now, (laughs) Osmonds. It's almost poetic, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. What a compare and contrast of fortunes.
1: We are Osmonds, King of Kings.
2: Look upon our works in despair. Yes. Relegated to the end credits. Ugh. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And also yeah. it's a bit unconvincing having a party. It's like oh the Osmonds are having a party, watch out. Mm. So that doesn't get yeah. too out of control. I mean, what kind yeah. of a party is this? The Republican yeah. Party.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: I mean look, I've since long since lost touch with young people, right? Largely because <laughs> I now can't speak to them without sounding like the pilot out of airplane, and uh, <laughs> or at least someone who makes cultural references like the pilot out of airplane, which leave them <laughs> staring blankly. Mm. But um, I'm pretty sure this has never been anyone's idea of a fucking party.
3: No, oh, what's going to be there? what What is it? You uh, not even Coca Cola, <laughs> yeah, mm. milk. Mm. Well, the Bay City Rollers would be all right with that because, according to Tom Payton, that's all they drink, they love oh, yeah. their milk, yeah, mm. yeah. they're like. Caledonian Humphreys.
2: I guess the only appeal of an Osmonds party would be uh, uh, seven girls for every boy, because it's the religion. <laughs> it? I mean, I think the first time the Osmonds were on air, I mentioned that during the period in which they were successful, i.e. this period, the official position of the Mormon Church was that black people could not hold any position of any kind within Mormonism because they didn't possess fully functional souls. And mm-hmm. that does appear... Well, Wiccan's
3: observations proved them correct on that, haven't they? <laughs> this does
2: appear to provide some explanation for the music of the Osmonds, mm. which is like suffocating in mayonnaise. Yeah, it's, it's
1: um, I think it's, it's like a homeopathically dilute version of like Sly Stone in the Dance to the Music era, that's all... Whole- exhortation really that they're trying to get going really it's um it's 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 pretty empty stuff really from a group whose um um you know existence is now entirely unnecessary
2: yeah yeah and i mean it is. this is supposed to be like a soul stomper isn't it like Mm, yes it it needs to have been recorded in you know muscle shoals or somewhere and Mm. delivered with a rich throaty voice like a voice which is enough to listen to by itself. Because this is not a whistling tune or a piece of melodic craft. This sort of song is a vehicle for a performance. And nobody anywhere along the line seems to have understood this. That This sort of song requires a remarkable delivery to be anything at all. So in the absence of a charismatic performance... It's just been crammed with overdubs and tooting horns and like these sounds of impersonated enthusiasm in the background, mm. like people going "woo mm. hey," like yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they've stuck in key changes and compressed mm. the recording to f- just everything to make it sound and exciting. It sing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 and yeah. It, it doesn't. Yeah. It just all that happens is it sounds overlit and it's glaring and it's Mm. too close to you you know it's like what it sounds like is a 30 second intro tune to a Saturday morning cartoon series or something Mm. right that isn't even meant to function as music just a sort of uh, Mm. a fanfare you know or a quick blast of a whistle to get everyone's attention it's like that but stretched out to a full three minutes and it it hurts Mm. a bit doesn't it
1: it is. It's, it's desperation. It's whistles and dee boppers and clown buckets of tinsel and stuff like that. And it seems to, it seems to be a theme, a theme throughout this show. That you know, like, you know, people, you know, there's desperation. This sort of everything but the kitchen sink attempt to kind of galvanise these kind of rather unimpressed, inert youth. Who, um, you know, you know, and is that to do with the innate inertia of the youth in 1975, the pop kids, or is it just the crappy bit of fare that they have being presented with? Yeah.
3: It's not been a good start for 1975 for the Osmonds over here. Uh, they had comeback gigs lined up at Earl's Court in January, but they were postponed. Oh, and yeah. At the time this episode was broadcast, uh, they can't pencil in replacement dates until the government announced the date of the common market referendum, as they've already bagsied the venue first for vote counting purposes. So, you know, Europe's holding back the Osmonds. <laughs> but it's a very strange follow-up to it. This is, I mean, this is the third single that's a follow-up to a number one, hmm. and it's a strange choice because the song's obviously been about for eighteen months because they were dancing to the instrumental to it on top of the pops, and it's also a really weird release time because this is more of a Christmas thing, isn't it? I
1: suppose. Yeah. Who has a party in March? Not in, not in the seventies. Yeah. Two parties a year. Yeah. Birthday and Christmas. That's right. Yeah. So this is your birthday in March, this is altogether inappropriate. Yeah,
2: they they are starting to look over the hill as well. Like, they're putting on weight and mm. stuff, you know what yeah. I mean? So yeah. what, they're wearing, what they're wearing here is a fusion of, like, Western-style tailoring, like sort of chamois leather fringe jackets, like sort of cowboy suits, mm. and those pure 70s shirts that are coloured like someone just randomly stuck a pin in the rgb wheel you know and made out of uh, Mm. some sort of viscous inorganic fiber Mm. um it looks really weird and it's not that flattering to a bunch of lads as as lumbering and and frankly pudgy at this point as the Mm. osmonds because tight suede bell buttons with a with a lace-up fly were not really designed for blokes with thighs shaped like Country hams, you know, like, you know, sort of, <laughs> like uh, chub eating Utah. Love. I mean, I, you know, not to be unkind, but a couple yeah. of these lads mm. got no. got a kind of legs where if they sat down naked and looked down into their own laps, it would look like two Mister Greedies facing each other, arguing over <laughs> a, a, a dropped sausage. Um, it's quite appropriate that they hail from Ogden, Utah. Because, you know, that's what they look like they're growing into, you know, like sl- <laughs> sloping off down the Rovers in a donkey chair, dribbling. <laughs> into their ch- it's like what Harry Maguire is going to look like when he's 50, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. But I mean, <laughs> fuck it up. We've all, we've all grown a little bit out of shape in lockdown, uh, mm. apart from the Joe Wicks fanatics with enormous mm. front rooms, just from, uh, mm. you know, low step count and surging cortisol. But what's the Osmonds' mm. excuse? You know what I mean? do yeah. so Mormons not recognise the sins of gluttony and sloth.
1: Except, I have said that, I mean, there is at least a sort of rather desperately empty attempt at energy. I mean, you can contrast the sort of listlessness of basic rollers, you know, that you talked about, but of course they don't really have to do anything because they're being adored for some other reason altogether yeah. than their own intrinsic qualities. And you contrast that mm. with the listfulness, as it were, of the Osmonds here, but, you know, to very little avail, really, because it's not... it it was never really about them or their energy or their qualities or otherwise. Um,
3: Yeah, yeah. All right. A party held by the Osmonds or a party held by the Bay City Rollers? Um, (laughs) I don't know. I think I'd probably...
1: I think I'd go to the Osmonds party and then make make my excuses at lunchtime and... uh, Yeah.
3: Because the lyrics are, are, are odd because it starts off with, it's Saturday night and my parents are out of town. Mm. Told all of my friends at school that tonight we're going to boogie down.
2: <laughs> my six parents are out of town.
3: <laughs> and then all the all the girls arrive. All the prettiest girls in the neighbourhood. The ugly ones are probably in the kitchen. Right, yeah, yeah. Sausage rolls yeah. or whatever. Mm. And then they've got the latest records. The music's up as loud as it can go. <laughs> yes. <laughs> which is probably not that loud. Mm. And then it gets to a really chilling part of the lyrics. This is why it's probably cut away, because this is the weird thing. Even Top of the Pops, they can't be bothered to show the whole video. Yeah. They cut back to the lights every now and again, don't mm. they? Yeah, yeah. But there's a part in the lyric which sends a chill down the spine. Take a look at little brother. He's a dancing fool. Watch him do the locomotion. Hey, man, he cool. Mm, this is Jimmy Osmond we're talking about (laughs) and then at the end it gets really weird because it says oh here come Ma pulling up in the drive everybody make a run for it because there ain't enough places to hide Mm. why's mum come back on her own what's gone off
1: hmm It's also poignant
3: a bit about the latest
1: records that they've got. I wonder if the Bay City Rollers are among them.
2: Yes. (laughs) Yeah, and watch out, because it's mam number four. She's the angriest. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) They really do look like a group who've shot their last bolt here, don't they? Yeah, Yeah, they really do. It's like the the last halfway interesting thing they ever did was that LP, uh, The Plan, which is Mm. a, a grotesque prog bubblegum album. Uh, which is all yeah. the purpose of it was all to try and flog their stupid religion to hormonal adolescence right through this yeah. really stodgy and doughy over ambitious music and it's got a sort of vanity publishing feel to it do you know what I mean it's like when you listen mm. to it, it's got like a complete absence of control or cohesion or uh, outside discipline and it's even got that crappy homemade looking cover. Like those albums that religious nuts make on their own, mate, yeah, you know, but they were superstars at the time, so they were just allowed to get on with it. Mm. that was two years prior to this, which could be why this has got that sort of half hearted uh, sort of spunked out feel to it you know it 's like they 've delivered their masterwork and done their holy duty, which nobody really gave a shit about because it, it was terrible, so what 's mm. left but the the dull clutter of meaningless worldly concerns, like having a party. So they can barely lift their feet off the ground, you know what I mean? They're just (laughs) sat at home cramming white bread into their mouths and (laughs) trying to pretend that the religion to which they've devoted their lives isn't actually a ludicrous con job, which it so obviously is. (laughs) So what's left? They're just waiting for the sweet summons from the heavenly horn section. So they... Don't have to do any more of this shit. I suppose the one thing about the Osmond
1: is a strange thing. I suppose if you stretch the kind of, you know, the full set of siblings is, is Marie Osmond. I mean, not just the kind of weird, strange dynamic between the two siblings when she duets with Donny Osmond, all of those romantic songs, which is sort of... Mm. But um, when the time that she read out the um, text by the founder of the Dardice movement, Hugo Ball, Carawani, which is like one of the most extreme... What? works of the 20 20- yeah and and um it was some show some themed show um and it's it's on youtube somewhere marie osman reading out um, one of the kind of great dadaist texts and she does <laughs> it and she does it you know she doesn't i don't think she re- i think she's just been presented with it and asked to read it but she makes a pretty decent fist what of it what was this for it was it was some tv show So match on youtube you just put in um, um marie osman hugo ball and
3: there it is <laughs> and then she went on to sell dolls of herself on qvc yeah <laughs> Yeah, oh, man. I worked at QVC for a for a year or so. All oh, right, really hoped to run into uh, Marie Osmond, but I didn't. Oh, I did get to share a table in the in the canteen with Joan Rivers. Oh. Yes, yeah, directly opposite her, but I didn't want to say anything. Did she say Ooh.
2: something cutting to you?
3: No, no, she didn't. No, she looked. Fucked off. <laughs> but I also um had a fag break in the company of Paul Lavers, Ooh, the great Paul Lavers. Mr. Midnight. Yeah. And Tony Blackburn. Wow. Ah. Yeah. But I didn't say anything because no. I was in awe and they yeah. didn't say anything particularly memorable, so yeah. I can't I can't relate that story, unfortunately. Yeah. But yeah.
2: Is Tony a mm. smoker?
3: No, he just wanted a nice stand in a Battersea car park and Get away from the hell of QVC for a bit. Tony's not a smoker. It's like kissing an ashtray. Nah. There's actually going to be an Osmond special on BBC One on Easter Sunday, which is in 10 days' time, uh, with special guests Andy Williams (laughs) and Isaac Hayes. Wow. Isaac fucking Hayes and the Osmonds. Yeah. Mm.
2: Well, you know, there's nothing you can tell Isaac Hayes about stupid con job religion.
3: (laughs) Oh, if only Isaac Hayes had done a fucking 20-minute version of Crazy Horses. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Well, like 60 BPM.
3: Oh, yes. Yes.
2: Or long-haired lover from Liverpool.
1: fucking hell
3: yes (laughs) so the following week we're having a party dropped two places back to number 30 and stayed there for two weeks before slithering down the charts the follow up the title track from their new LP The Proud One righted the ship when it got to number five in June of this year but diminishing returns set in and by the end of 1976 I Can't Live a Dream scraped in at number 37 their last top 40 appearance in the UK until a re-release of Crazy Horses has got to number 34 in June of 1999 and that. Me dears, is the end of this episode of Top of the Pops. But there is a voiceover advert at the end for Super Beebs, the best of Top of the Pops, their first ever compilation LP featuring Kung Fu Fighting, Hey Rock and Roll, Sad Sweet Dreamer, Hello Hello, I'm Back Again, Laughter in the Rain, and nine other original tracks available in all good record shops for £2.40 pence. That's three quid in today's money. Yes. <laughs> Perhaps even more. So what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One piles straight into Are You Being Served? Where Mr. Lucas conspires to throw a sick air so we can go on a date. Followed by the documentary series Taste for Adventure, where a collector of steam engines tries to purchase some Zambian locomotives. (laughs) After the nine o'clock news, Elizabeth Taylor stars in Mrs Palfrey at the Claremont, this week's play for today. Then it's midweek with Ludovic Kennedy, the weather, regional news in your area, and they close down at half past eleven. BBC Two is ten minutes into part three of Late Call, the Dennis Potter dramatisation of the Angus Wilson novel about life in a West Midlands new town. Then it's the penultimate part of the documentary series The Roman Way, followed by Dave Allen at large. Man Alive looks at the first three days of the Clifford House adolescent unit in London, then it's News Extra with Angela Rippon, then Second City Firsts, a season of new plays from Birmingham. This week, Alison Stedman knocks off a student's in Early to Bed, written by Alan Bleasdale. Then Julian Glover reads Folk Wisdom by Thomas Kinsella before they close down, also at half-eleven. ITV has just started Man About the House where a bodge DIY job means that Robin, Chrissy and Joe have to move in with George and Mildred and Robin has to share a bed with Tony Blackburn's <laughs> wife. No, with yes. George. Then the current affairs show this week and then Jack Regan goes out of his way to prove that a convicted prisoner on parole played by Dim out of Clockwork Orange was framed in The Sweeney. After the news at 10, Judith Chalmers and Jim Lloyd piss about in the Austrian Alps and the Spanish plane in Wish You Were Here, followed by what the papers say, people and politics escape and they close down as late as 25 whole minutes past midnight. Fucking hell, ITV, calm it down. So, chaps, what are we talking about in the playground tomorrow? Well,
1: I think it's going to be Funky Gibbon, really, uh, to be honest. Mm. They were just goodies obsessed. I remember this. and I mean, it's really sad, really, because around this time, you know, we ought to write an essay about our kind of favourite show and all the kind of hip kids, you know, wore our collars outside of our kind of, you know, lapels and stuff like that and our ties in big knots. You know, of course, we were into the goodies. And then there was, like, this mm. poor lad called uh, Chris Melody. He was kind of the cuff- cringeworthy of the class. And in his essay, oh, no. he decided, my favourite television programme is Dad's Army. I love the dumbling oh. antics of Captain Mannering and the Platoon. we would ah fuck. <laughs> yeah. You know, and it just got like jeered down as soon as he said, Dad's I army mean, that's silly. Of course he was right. Of course Dad's army's better than the goodies, but um, but no, it was you know,
2: such were the times that it would definitely have been the goodies. Yeah, yeah, the the goodies as usual. What else are you gonna talk about in the playground? Mm.
3: And what are we buying on Saturday?
2: Packet of chocolate digestives. Mm. <laughs> I probably would have bought Funky Gibbon. Um don't
1: think think I'd have stretched to anything else to be honest there are certainly better records here but um one or two anyway but um I think I
2: think I would have just stuck to the goodies to be honest because you know money was tight mm. yeah at the time the goodies for sure but I mean obviously now it would be the same as all the top of the is from this particular mm. area which is just all the souls exactly stuff. yeah yeah yes
3: yeah. including Wiggins Ovation eh
2: mm. oh gotcha
3: and what does this episode tell us about March of nineteen
1: seventy five? I don't know, it was an awful it's an awful long time since nineteen seventy-two
2: and it was an awful long way to go before nineteen eighty-one. Mm. Yeah, it's uh, sweat and polyester and cigarette fog. And and an open, upfront passions, uh but hidden, suppressed fears and neuroses, which is pretty much the opposite of now. Um mm. The only thing that does seem familiar is the sense of drift, you know, Mm. towards God knows what. And very few things that that one drifts towards are good. You know what I mean? People tend not to drift towards rescue or drift towards revelation, you know. (laughs) You remember when we were talking about uh, skiing in the snow? Yeah. And I said, is this the only uh, top 40 single with a double I in it? Pompeii by... Bastille is the The other uh, top 40 single with a double I in it. Yeah, I thought it might be Blue Hawaii by Elvis, but that wasn't a single. Katy Perry released a single called Harleys in Hawaii. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds glamorous, Um, but it never made the top 40.
3: Right. Hawaiian Wedding Song by uh, Julie Rogers got to number 31 in 1965. Ah, shit. And, and and I'm guessing I, 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 Moosey doesn't count, does it? Cause I, <laughs> no, it four. fucking doesn't. Yeah, bastards. Yeah. there we go. <laughs> Good one, Taylor. And that, me dears, is the end of this episode of Chart Music. Use your promotional flange. Website, www.chart-music.co.uk. Facebook.com slash Chart Music Podcast. Reach us on Twitter at Chart T-O-T-P. Money down the G-string. Patreon.com slash Chart Music. Thank you very much, Taylor Parks. Cheers. God bless you, David Stubbs. And yourself. My name's Al Needham. And now we've talked about that... Let's talk about this. What's that? Girls, right on. Sharp <laughs> music.
2: Great painting. They got nothing else to do. Also, there'll be a quiz on the bell. Alright, see you soon. Lots of love. Cabin fea
3: Oh oh oh, that's our Twitter
2: name.
0: When you know you're going to be on stage, you want to make sure that you look your best. And that you're properly dressed for the part. Appearance was especially important to a gentleman named Hugo Ball. He was a poet and a leader of an artistic movement called Dada. A hat like this was part of his costume, which looked like this. The number 13 on the cardboard tube that covered his face had nothing or everything to do with his performance. Dada artists didn't claim to make sense, but they did want to make unconventional artistic statements. Most of them as a form of social protest. In this case, the statement included waving a small flag while reciting a nonsensical poem. The poem was written and first performed by Hugo Ball in Zurich in 1916. And it remains to this day a classic example of what Mr. Ball called sound poetry. Here's what it sounds like. A totally imaginary language invented by Mr. Ball. Kawani jolifanto blamba o hambla. Gros siga pafla habla hormigaga gormen. high glo glo aikora Sulohuju, Holaka holala. An logo Blagobang Blago bang. Blago bang futaka. U Shampa uwalewasa. Olobo. gorme gormeshej zumbada. Wulubu susuba de ulua susuba Kasagama. Baunf. It didn't make any sense, but it wasn't supposed to make any sense. But nevertheless, Mr. Ball's performance got a rousing ovation and turned out not to be a passing fancy, but a new art form. Sound poetry.